And today joining us from the University of California is Fernando Lopez Alves. Fernando, thank you for being here. Ah, thank you for having me. Fernando, you're a professor of sociology in global international studies at the UC Santa Barbara. You are also an author, and you have recently published a book called Populist Nationalism in Europe and the Americas. Why don't we start by talking about your personal journey and what got you interested in becoming a sociologist? I came from the world of political militants, more known from the world of academia, to <clears throat> to become an academic at the end of the line. But my first inspiration was basically union work, uh, which I did in Latin America. Uh, my dad was a union leader, so I grew up in a house full of smoke. And what captured me from that and took me into academia was uh, some of these guys that were in the union uh, uh, thought of themselves as philosophers instead of union leaders, and they had all their opinions, and they were reading Plato, Kant, you know, Marx, of course, that was a favorite, mm. yeah. uh, Nietzsche, um, and Kierkegaard, and also the Germans, like Hegel, so they had roundtable discussions about these books, and I started reading them with them, and that's how I became interested in issues of political science, sociology, etc. So from there to political science and to philosophy and to sociology was just a very short trip. Given your whole career setting political movements, what concerns you the most? Um, I'm concerned and wake up concerned about the possible disintegration of a global system that we have built after World War II that uh, obviously is in transition and everybody agrees that it's in transition, but I worry about transition toward what? And that is what we need to discuss probably in this podcast. You know, what is a real transition toward? Mm. Instead of uh, thinking that things are fixed, globalization meant, among other things, that things change more rapidly now than ever before in human history. And that being said, the point is, is there is a point to that change or is just random change mm with not much of a, of a fixed goal to it. The, I mean, it's not all bad news. Uh, we have good news and bad news. The bad news uh, are that the system is one that creates more and more uncertainty, uh, and that can be felt at the personal level, not only at the country level, the state level, or governmental level, but also the personal level, where my dad was around, um, uh, you could have a job for about 30, 40 years, and then you retire from that job with a pension, usually paid by the union. And this was exactly that way in this country, the U.S., as it was in other countries at the time. Uh, when my cohort came around, the idea of having just one job became a little bit more problematic. Right now, we know that in America, the average America, American young person will have 15 jobs, at least, in her lifetime or her lifetime. Mm -hmm. So there will be 15 kinds of changes, and that has to do with the rapid change of technology That's and right. the shifting of roles and, and job you know, uh, descriptions around the globe. So that creates uncertainty. That's kind of a part of the bad news. In order to cope with that bad news, then uh, people seem to be, uh, among other things, seem to be thinking that they need more strong, stronger leadership, uh, that they need somebody who understands their plea, mm -hmm. that they need somebody who is not a politician because of the decline of the political class in the West, at least, in the well-known democracies of the West, mm -hmm. is a fact to this point. You know, there, there are studies that show that since World War II, and I am one of the persons who did one of these studies, to the present day, the uh, prestige of the political elites had gone down 85 points. So if mm -hmm. after World War II we were the saviors of the world and democracies were booming mm -hmm. and we had defeated Hitler and mm -hmm. the world was rosy and pink and everybody mm -hmm. was happy, mm -hmm. evidently that meant that the that people around the world put a lot of trust in the leadership. In the democratic leadership of the of the of the victors of World War II, 
uh, when you get to the 1970s, you see already the discontent. People were not happy. The 60s and 70s are decades of protest, of student movements around the world. Terrorist organizations start operating not only in Latin America and in Southeast Asia, but also in Europe and the United States. Uh, you see during that era, 60s and 70s, such a, a, a moment of protest, a hippie movement being one of them, of people that wanted to drop the system because the system was no longer working, or at least not working the way they wanted it to work, and the politicians were blamed for it. It was a direct target. I mean, people blame the politicians. Now, when the politicians are blamed and that desprestige continues, then you have a system that has no legitimacy. And it's precisely in that kind of problem of, you know, crisis of legitimacy that neo-populist movements might emerge, mm -hmm. then pro-Nazi movements may re-emerge, mm -hmm. then the right wing can, you know, get some fuel, that the radical left wing also, which we don't like either, also can get some, right, some um, reason to be, reason of existence. So, in that regard, the prestige of the political elites is so blatantly obvious today, because when you look at the leaders of the world today, in most of these countries, people have voted people that are not part of the political elite. Donald Trump is not part of the political elite, or not at least viewed as such. Macron, even in France, well, he was That's right, taken yes. because he was new mm -hmm. to that political elite. Mm -hmm. And I can go on and on, on Podemos in Spain, mm -hmm. I can go on and on, um, naming movements and leaders mm -hmm. that are there because they were not part of the political Politically, so, Macri in Argentina is not part of the political elite, and that, that's why he won, he won the presidency. Uh, so, where do we go with this? I mean, we mm -hmm. need to create a new kind of political elite that's more responsive and more absolutely um, uh, directly connected to their constituencies, or we are shifting to a different kind of system that is no longer the traditional democracies that we see, but something totally different. Mm -hmm. So, what are the facts for, in this case, the United States? Today, 57% of voters in the United States believe that politicians are either semi-corrupt or corrupt. 37% of those who believe that this political system is not working are against political correctness. 37% are against... So, mm. if, you, if you put the numbers in there, then you just play trap. You can explain the Trump phenomena, which is nothing that came out of a hat, mm. but came out of these historical circumstances. Um, while in 1975, every average family in this country saved about 2%, 3%, 4% sometimes of their income, right now it's 0.1% of their income that is owned, mm. not safe. It's a deficit it's right a now, deficit. <laughs> and the past was a plus, and now it's a minus. Mm -hmm. And connected to your probably next question about urban, um, urban centers and, and their, their importance, in in the United States at least, and in Latin America, I can claim to be similar. Um, of course, we saw an incredible urban movement during the 1970s and 80s, mm. people moving to urban centers looking for better jobs. Uh, mm. In Sao Paulo in 1987, um, uh, approximately uh, 70,000 people arrived to Sao Paulo every day from the countryside of Brazil. In Mexico mm. City, approximately you know, 15,000 people arrived every day to Mexico City, from the countryside of Mexico. I mean, that that the one of part of the problems in the 1980s was the uh, weakening of the rural economy, right? Even in countries that are uh, export-oriented, agro-export-oriented, mm -hmm. like yes. Latin American countries. I mean, the weakening of the, of the rural economy meant increasing migration toward urban centers. Mm. And to that, you can add, of course, a little bit of migration, urban migration within Latin American countries in which some people go to another country, like Peruvians going to Buenos Aires or, mm. or Bolivians going to Argentina, etc. You can mm. also add that. Today, of course, the Venezuelans are number one 
uh, in terms of how many of them go to another country. But during most of the last two decades or three decades, we see this movement there. Uh, that implies that cities don't cope with that. They have no mechanism of coping with all this. It also implies that somebody has to produce the food and somebody in the city <laughs> doesn't produce the food. Mm. So that opened the door. What happened in this country, in the U.S., is that that's what opened the door for the big agribusiness. Mm-hmm. Uh, big agribusiness uh, took roots in the United States at the same time that a movement toward migration, toward urban centers were taking place. The United States always praised itself for no being one of these totally urban places in the world. We praise ourselves for having the majority of our people in smaller towns, not in bigger towns. Mm-hmm. But nonetheless, has been, nonetheless, a migration to our bigger towns, especially mm-hmm. professional technocrats, etc., which shift politics in this country mm-hmm. enormously. Uh, the story of the Democratic Party, I think it tells the story of the Asian Democratic Party, was a party of supposedly workers and low-middle-class, white-collar operatives. That was the party that I knew, you know, 30 30 years ago when I was a part of it. Mm. Uh, Right now, that party is a party of technocrats. It's a party of Google. It's the party of Amazon. It's the party of Apple. It's the party of all these big corps. It's the party of Silicon Valley. Uh, This is the party we have today. And that means that the constituencies of this party are more urban than rural. And they are more urban yuppie, upper class than they are urban lower class. Absolutely. Right? Which left a big room for what? The other party to look for other constituencies that are not these ones. That's right. So other constituencies are what? Uh, Depleted cities, cities like... You know, um, the Rust Belt, mm-hmm. right, in which everybody left. And this is the target of populists. So when you have the urbanization affects politics 100%. Because if we study populism in America, we will realize that those who supported Trump are either from rural areas, small towns, or towns that were bigger but became smaller because capital investment flew the town. So, and if you look at uh, uh, who supports the other party, you see that there are more urbanites, sophisticated, living in, you know, bigger bigger urban centers like New York City, San Francisco, Chicago, etc., etc. And so, you know, urbanization and de-urbanization, those who lost mm-hmm. investment, mm. directly affected the future of this country indirectly affects the future of globalization and directly affects the politics that we will see emerging mm-hmm. right from these mm-hmm. changes mm-hmm. between urban and rural, rural and That's urban. Right. Right? Yeah, this is a very interesting actually that there are these, it's almost like a, a controversial but not ultimately controversial or contradictory kind of a, uh, developments and both of them are actually kind of uh, adding to this phenomenon that we see today. So for those who are not familiar with this term, what is populist nationalism and why is it important? Yeah, well, anybody who's in academia, and I hope not a lot of people that are listening to this are, uh, hopefully we can get to other people that are not part of our business. Um, There is a huge debate as to what populism really means, right? Nationalism people understand better because nationalism has to do with the defense of what I think is my national identity, my country, my land, my way of life, my culture, mm-hmm. right? People like that are like me, so mm, those form part of my nation. So nationalism is the defense of the nation, however I conceive that nation varies. Mm-hmm. But nationalism is the attitude that I have, the ideology that I have, or the militants that I have, right? That I need to put forward to defend what I think is valid, my community, my people, my, my values. And of course that leads to war many times, that's why nationalism is associated so much with war, right? Mm-hmm. So it has that bad rep right there, there's a bad reputation about nationalism, and for, on the other hand there's a good reputation about nationalism, which is the fact that we all try to put our part for something bigger than ourselves. That's, that's a good part of, of nationalism. Now, populism always has been seen as something 
connected but totally different from nationalism. My argument, and that's why I wrote this book, is that to argue that they are married, that they are together, that if we saw something incredible different about the 21st century, is this very strong marriage between nationalism and populism. By populism, people usually meant, well, populist movements were those movements in which a leader was very important. She or he had a direct communication with uh, her or his following. Uh, the people were defined as that group, right? So when I, when I, if I am in Argentina and I am in the 1940s and I am Perón and Evita, mm-hmm. I will say I'm a populist because I defend the people. The people are usually what? The lower class people, the workers, right? And the, the low white collar workers, uh, the rural mm-hmm. uh, worker, those are the people. So it's mm. anti the populist. Yes. So it's anti-capitalist in certain ways and it's anti-elite in certain ways. Being a populist means to be anti-political elite, means that you, the political parties that are in existence don't satisfy you. And we need something new. We need this leader that's going to change that society for the good of the people. Mm-hmm. That's what populism has meant. And there are many different variations. Uh, some of them say populism needs a big state and a strong state so that that leader on top can really work toward the benefit of those on the bottom and the state becomes actually the instrument by which this leader will do these things, right? Mm-hmm. So a strong state, strong populist leader usually have been that, that association. It has been usually understood that democracy is opposite to populism because populism is the idea that we need this strong leader in this direct communication with the leader. While a democracy, you don't have that. You vote for somebody, but you vote for a party. Uh-huh. The party mediates your relationship, and then the law mediates it, the public bureaucracy mediates the relationship. You don't even hear anymore from, from that guy that you voted. Mm-hmm. It's much more of a distant connection. Populism wants a direct connection. Therefore, Donald Trump sends, you know, tweeters, and therefore, you know, uh, Putin has two or three radio stations by which he addresses the people himself. Therefore, the president of China goes out there and does podcasts all the time and news all the time, trying to reach down to the level without intermediaries, without mm-hmm. intermediaries. So it's always been like not really very democratic. So how do I put the two together? I mean, populism and nationalism. Uh, can I ask then yeah. uh, one more aspect of the populism? Because, <coughs> yes, it's, it's very much this kind of a anti-elite, which again that needs a new elite, which is the director that leads this, um, these, these right. people. But then there is this other aspect, which is that there is a threat out there. And the, the threat is in additional to the the threat of the elites that are kind of a pushing <coughs> us down or we are alienated from them, then there is this other thing which are the immigrants and the others that are about to invade to our country and take uh, and, and use all the benefits and, and live on our taxes. And uh, that seems to be the one that is, this is growing more than everything else because the migration is increasing everywhere in the world because of the number of the reasons mm-hmm. have to do with the globalizations and, and the recent wars than in Syria. So when we define the populism, uh, there seems to be like a, these sort of a two main aspects, this anti-elitism and, and then pinpointing someone else who's coming from somewhere and taking right. benefits. Right, there is then that differentiates populism from the left and populism from the right. You're yeah. right <coughs> about immigrants being the catalytic mm-hmm. that make the difference between the right-wingers and the left-wing populists. Yeah. The left-wing populists are totally anti-elite and they want to carve a place for them to be the elite, right? They are the anti, you know, anti-traditional elite, so they carve you know, a new elite, which is themselves, like Peron in Argentina, you know, the Santos in Brazil, 
you know, everybody. And so there, once they, oh, Charles in Venezuela, right? Mm -hmm. uh, they carve that place in there, right? And then they start making reforms from that, from that place. So they are all elites that are the enemy. Mm -hmm. And of course, the international system and, and the United States and, you know, imperialism and all that in case of Chavez, for instance, or whatever interference with our national business is an enemy. That is true. When you have populism now in the core of the system, in the core of the global system, which is the new thing of the 21st century, for a long time, populism and nationalism were seen as phenomena affecting the periphery of the global system. They were seen as something that only emerged under conditions of underdevelopment or imperfect democracy, right? The United States and all these other good democracies of the world, Canada, etc., were imperious to all that. They were mm -hmm. out of that bag. They will never have populist leaders in this country because we have a consolidated democracy and because we had a developed society, right? That was the wisdom up until the late 1980s, right? The, uh, populism was in the periphery and we could analyze it there, but it will come here. But the surprising thing of the 21st century is that populism now is at the center of the global system, mm. as at the core of it. And what that means is that the core countries that receive a lot of immigration mm -hmm. and a lot of others, you know, that populism sees and nationalism sees as enemies, means that the populism in the developed countries usually tend to be right-winger and conservative. Populisms in the non-developed country seem to usually be lefty or progressive, yeah. right? because they oppose the local elites and oppose the international elites. But when you have populism in the developed countries, and you have this influx of immigrants coming in that are threatening, mm -hmm. then populism becomes very nationalistic, mm -hmm. and populism then becomes conservative because it's a conservation of the status quo ante that I want to have. I want not to change my ways of life and blah, blah, blah. So here is how populism and nationalism talk to each other. Mm -hmm. Because in the core countries of the system, and you live in one of them, mm -hmm. right? Uh, but the whole northern, the whole north, you know, the northern of Europe, and, and even the south of Europe sometimes, and Germany, etc. In the United States, Canada, France, you know, England, etc., etc., Germany, all these countries are switching toward a, a conservative populism, a conservative populism connected in merit to nationalism because of immigrants, because the presence of immigrants, the other is in the midst of my own society. The other is not the German that I fought in World War II, where British. He's German, the other is in their own place, geographically speaking, their own place, and I can fight that one, and he can fight me because we are totally different, totally strangers. But now, this guy, who I consider to be outside my society, that's why I need to fight him off, now is living among my people, is with me, inside my society. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so that is the actually the reason, one of the reasons, not all of it, but one of the reasons why the uh, conservative populism in developed democracies have become much more stronger, mm -hmm. I think. And I want to bring us back to the process of globalization and how that impacts us directly in our local environment and in the very uh, urbanized environments that we live in. Um, you have talked about the complexity that arises from in the interconnectivity and interdependencies that are there in terms of migration, the cultural integration, um, the growth, uh, the cultural clashes that arise and the economic inequality that exists. Uh, given all of that, uh, what do you see as being the key trends there? Well, I think that, um, well, to start with, I think that if you look at the developed societies of the world, the developed countries, what is at the stake is whether or not we can have multicultural, multi-ethnic, uh, multi-gender societies. I mean, it, can we have that? I mean, that is 
the basic of societies like the United States or Canada or even <clears throat> or even France, um, right? Can we have societies that are multicultural and diverse? Because are they united as a nation and a society, or they are just different little groups thinking that the next door group is their enemy? Mm-hmm. Like Latinos and blacks in this country, or Jewish, or Muslims, right? Mm-hmm. Or gays, or transvestites, or transsexual, or lesbians. Do they believe that we have a lot in common, or they are concerned that everybody is entrenching into their rights? They are concerned that they need to defend their turf. They are concerned that other groups are kind of trying to compete for the same resources. So one question that is, I think, an important one is that we can can we maintain this? Is it possible to have? Have we ever had it? No, we have not had it, and um, I think that. Immigration, as you said, uh, was a big, incredible, actually, uh, variable and factor that accelerated the divisions in these in these societies. Um, mm-hmm. Look, uh, talking about California, that you wanted to ask me today off off the microphone, you talked mm-hmm. to me about California. Thirty five years, thirty five years ago, California had half of the population that it had today. Thirty five years ago. California was half of what it is half. today. So half. it's about 15 million or something? Yes, today yeah. is 48 million. So 30 years ago was half of what it is mm. today. Uh, of the population of California today, today, 27% are born outside the country. Not outside California. 27%. So how about that? So mm. when we think, oh, I'm sorry. When we think about uh, when we think about um, these societies that in the past didn't know how to cope with urbanization and immigration, we think about the United States, for instance, at the beginning of the 19th century, we think of Canada. By the end of the 19th century, we think of Argentina by 1890s, where you know half of the population in Buenos Aires was foreign-born. Or in Canada, we think about it like a very exceptional historical event. Well, we are living one right now. Nowadays, that is a historical incredible exception. People don't realize that today, California at least, right, mm-hmm. is living that same kind of situation that, you know, the United States lived in the late 18th century, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? right? But it's happening right now. Mm-hmm. So happening right now with a number of expectations that people did not have before. Before, people had not very many expectations, you know, came to a country, immigrated into a country, you were lucky to be admitted, Uh, sometimes you had to fight a war to be considered national, and you established residence, Mm. and God bless you, because there is no programs that can help you, there is no social help, there is no transition, there is no well, you speak your own language and later you learn English or whatever. No, it's just, you know, you needed to just learn the language and do all that in less than one generation. Mm-hmm. In less than one cohort of people, everybody needed to be adjusted. Today, we have a number of other things to help with that transition. Mm-hmm. But that created a different kinds of expectations today. People today expect something totally different, mm-hmm. right? And see, if you have, for example, the, the caravans, that come to the to the California and to the Texan border, right? Those caravans of Central American people that try to come here to establish residence, claiming political asylum, etc., etc. You have to process these uh, things. Uh, the expectations are different. Before you claim, of course, political asylum in World War One and World War Two. Mm-hmm. Uh, now that has not been the case. Mm-hmm. It's better, yes, it's better for those who are persecuted in their own country. That's much better, of course, and I understand that. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, that creates a lot of pressure on the receiving country. That's right. That we are mm-hmm. sometimes forgetting. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, we see it from the human point of view, from the humanitarian point of view, of course. You know, we see people that need help. But from the receiving country, it creates a lot of political problems inside the country. 
that are not solvable right now with the tools that we have. We don't have the tools to solve that. We don't have them. What so, are the tools that we need for, to solve this issue? Well, we, the tools that we need to solve this issue first is, um, uh, in, at least in the, in the United States, which is the case that I know better, uh, other cases um, I, cannot, I cannot talk about mm -hmm. this. Um, we need to stop, for instance, having a policy of border controls that only uh, rewards right, extreme, totally extreme cases of political injustice outside the country, but does not reward skill. Mm. Now, if, you, if I come here and say I'm a good engineer and I want to stay in this country, mm. I won't get in. <laughs> mm. Right? But mm -hmm. if I said, you know, I am a political refugee, they persecute in my country, I may get in. Mm -hmm. But both situations seem to be worthwhile attending. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not saying that we need to stop accepting the political refugee, but I'm saying we need to start accepting those who come with skills. Okay. The other thing that we need to change in this country, and I think that's crucial, is the policy that if I have a million dollars and I want to invest in this country, I can come here, invest a million dollars, which is nothing really, in nowadays a million dollars is not so much, and I can get uh, citizenship for me and my family and the members of my immediate family. Uh, that policy, which is going on, has created a lot of problems for us because there is a lot of, um, a lot of um, resentment about this policy mm -hmm. from people that live in several communities and then these people come into those communities and they are richer than the rest and create a lot of resentfulness mm -hmm. within those communities. And we had, I have numbers and we have figures, it's not yeah. something I'm, mm -hmm. I'm coming up with. Mm -hmm. This idea was, this idea is a very old idea, it's an idea that comes from the 1930s, from the Depression. Mm -hmm. In the Depression, we needed people to come with a million dollars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and now, yeah, yeah. now we That's don't, a million dollars. comes from there, yeah. You know, you need to, um, you need to uh, uh, prove that you can employ mm -hmm. so many people and you need to mm -hmm. prove, mm -hmm. but, this idea, I know people in this country that can speak English mm. and they have mm. an American passport because of that policy. Mm. Uh, but, but isn't that, uh, you mentioned already 1930s, and, and, and of course it's not difficult to see some of the, some of the kind of a, a similar um, a features in the situation which is now and which was in the 1930s, and it's probably not a happenstance that before uh, 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 1930s happened this uh, Great Depression. Now we had a recently financial crisis, which in a way still continues to some extent, and and which has shaken a lot of um, confidence in 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 the in the society, in the people, and of course in the markets as well. Uh, even though it's been a, a lot of growth there as well. But the point is that. Uh, and you mentioned that earlier, that there are these new uh, um, uncertainties and insecurities out there that is very strongly felt by the people and that creates a lot of this uh, uh, kind of a social phenomena that we're talking about here. Now, if we try to build this into our ideas of how, how this kind of a the, this fits into the picture where there is uh, urbanization and de-urbanization. And we think about that, what are the new uh, kind of a, a growing centers, so to say, in, in, in the world? And, uh, and how do we need to think about this, how, um, how this kind of a growing urbanism actually that has traditionally assimilated people. That has been a great process of assimilation, mm -hmm. far or near. Uh, people sort of uh, uh, disappear into the cities and urbans, mm -hmm. but at the same time they create there their own lives. It's a kind of a process of creation mm -hmm. and destruction at the same time. And, and this has been going on in the last 200 years as the, as the urbanization has been moving on. And it still continues, but now maybe with a new um, aspect to that. And this aspect 
has a lot to do with these new confrontations that are, are, are growing because the world has simply become much more complex than it used to be. Just because of this globalization and these new technological layers and more interaction between distant and near. And all this has, has provoked by itself also these new uh, tensions that we, are now, that we are now observing in, in this, um, uh, what, what you have found on this populist nationalism. Now, the question is that how do we, how do we, how do we see, how do we, how, would, how do we get from here? What, what type of the, um, um, the, I would say the urban, urban policy should we be placing so, which would enable this kind of a positive multiculturalism to, to happen also through these policies that you were, you were, you were uh, pointing up before. Yeah, it's a very complex <clears throat> set of questions, no one question, it's a yeah. set of questions. Let me give it a try, I don't know. Yes. Uh, <laughs> um, one thing that I've been, uh, I mean, I've been observing is what uh, well, the 21st century has brought with it, as you know, the diversification of investment. Um, so anybody now having a retirement account uh, has a portfolio, diversification investment, right? <clears throat> Why do I say this? Because one of the investments, or the only investment, of the upper middle class, middle class, and low middle class in America at least, is urban property. Urban property. Okay. People buy homes. Mm -hmm. Buy homes, that's, for them, the security of the future is investing in a house. Because that is the only investment that they can make. Uh, because evidently in a much more unegalitarian system, when a 1.5% owns the 80%, That's right. you know, in that system, what kind of investment can you have? What kind of thing can you buy? You know, a car is no longer an investment, a house uh, more than $2 million is not accessible to a number of people. So what you see in America is the investment of the middle class, the hope of investing in something for the future is all based on, 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 on real estate, urban real estate. Mm -hmm. Not even rural real estate, urban real estate. Mm -hmm. During uh, the last 20 years, and there are numbers for this, uh, the, the department here in, in, um, uh, in UCLA, the, the urban, uh, urban planning department mm -hmm. uh, has figures on that, but I remember some of them. Mm -hmm. In the last 20 years, I'm talking about 21, 25 years now, and last 25 years now, um, we see that uh, investment in small properties, condos, apartments, uh, townhouses, this is where all the money goes to. And because it goes there, you know, it has to do with the growth of cities at the same time, not only for living, but as investment. Mm -hmm. People look at the property not as a living quarter, but as an investment, an investment for the future. Everybody thinking that, you know, things are going to go up. Of course, we have mm -hmm. a lot of housing, you know, uh, disasters, right? And we, mm -hmm. we, the, the last one in 2008, mm -hmm. you know, so bubbles can form and, and things can go. Mm -hmm. But that implies that cities grow. Cities grow because sprawling grows mm -hmm. and because the urban in a small town mm -hmm. investment grows enormously. Mm -hmm. But when you look at what kind of people can move into cities in the United States today, in some cases you see some retirees moving to cities because they want the entertainment, they want to be, you know, not bored to, to tears in mm -hmm. isolated quarters. But the real movers and shakers of cities today are very wealthy professionals mm. in this country at least. Mm -hmm. uh, there are people that can pay 3,000, 4,000 bucks for rent. And I'm giving you numbers from New York and San Francisco, you know, uh, some areas of Chicago, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, those are the numbers. Mm. So those, well, LA too is more spread out, but the real nice parts of LA, you're talking about $3,000 mm -hmm. rent. Mm -hmm. So uh, those who move in there are the new technological elite. 
the ones that move into the cities, and the ones that make it difficult for others to move into the cities because they're willing to pay the 3,000 bucks and or 4,000, San Francisco has rent of 6,000, 7,000. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. There is no limit, basically. Mm-hmm. And stop the rest of us from moving into there. For, so the middle class invests in cities, but doesn't always live there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm trying yeah. to say? Yeah. Uh, they invest in there, but the ones who live there temporarily or not, sometimes are people that are wealthier than you, you get the, the <laughs> to the situation in this country that sometimes the renter is much wealthier than the owner mm-hmm. of the property. Mm-hmm. So the one that rents has much more assets than the one that does the owner. Why doesn't the guy who rents buys? Because he is, again, we come back to the first thing about this conversation, because he's not sure he, that this job he has or she has is going to last very long. So she's thinking, well, you know, I rent here because Uh then I am in, today Uh I am in Cincinnati, Uh Uh and tomorrow I may be in Austin, Uh and then next year I'll be in in Washington, D.C., or I'll be in, you know, in Maryland, or whatever. So this professional class tends to rent, not to buy. Uh Isn't that uh, Uh interesting? Yes, Uh very interesting. Yeah, and that's also because maybe... For them, the issue is that where they want to invest is not, it's not to have a house by themselves for the reasons you already explained, but also for the reasons that they think that there are better ways to invest your money. They, they are better ways to invest your money. Exactly yeah. right. You're totally right. They invest in things much more productive mm-hmm. as an investment than in small yeah. urban real estate. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. that's right. But what that means, and I finish with that, is that cities have become not less segregated today than they used to be before. We thought that the new urban planning was going to eliminate segregation in cities, mm-hmm. and we haven't done that. I mean, the whole gentrification mm-hmm. of cities mm-hmm. in America owes to this phenomenon. Yes. It's because of this phenomenon, because of these new, younger professionals, staffers, and, and mm-hmm. engineers, and all that stuff, that move into the nice areas of town. Of course. So they gentrify the town. They gentrify. But the segregation continues to exist because those who were there were displaced to the periphery of that city and they still live in the periphery of that city. They didn't go to the countryside back. Mm -hmm. They live in the periphery of that city. And so gentrification didn't mean that we made things better. It meant that we made things different. Mm-hmm. It's a different kind of, mm. uh, you know, segregation today than we had, let's say, in the 1980s. And so in terms of creating community, in the United States, we could say that uh, urban development and in core areas does a very good job at attracting higher income levels or the highly paid, but they put less focus on um, developing active citizenship, for example, or creating real sustainable communities? Probably community is one of the most widely used words in this country, even in academia especially, right? That doesn't mean anything. Mm. Um, It sounds great. It sounds good to to talk about communities. But in this country, at least in California, which is what I know best, hardly you know your neighbor. I mean, community means I know my neighbor or I know somebody around and I can go and have a party with somebody or I have a birthday and I invite the guy next door. That doesn't happen in California ever. Well, may happen if these people have in a very, you know, we are secluded place in which people don't move in and out. But this is still the country in the world in which people move more around this country than in any part of the world. I mean, we establish residence in this country mm. in different places, in even different states, mm. much more frequently than in any other part of the world people move around. So mm. we are a moving population all the time mm-hmm. where that sense of community, I think, is lost mm-hmm. because I don't know very many people. And mm-hmm. if you move to a place, you sometimes think, oh, I'm going to move to, I got a job in Arizona, mm-hmm. and that has happened to me. And then I look around in my in my phone book and see well, what what who do I know in mm-hmm. Arizona, mm-hmm. and if I know one person, mm-hmm. I'm very happy, mm-hmm. right? And I say, mm-hmm. oh, I got a community. No, I don't have a community. <laughs> I have one guy that I know, right? So the idea of community is one of the hardest challenges of urban planning, ever, 
ever mm -hmm. in this country because mm -hmm. in the twenties people mm -hmm. didn't even think about that because they were the same neighbors all mm -hmm. the time in the same mm -hmm. in the same mm -hmm. place. You know, mm -hmm. New York, for instance, was a very very tight neighborhood, community, Jewish, etc. They were really very tight. Everybody knew each other, but that has gone. Even New York is not like that anymore. Mm -hmm. The Bronx used to be a very tight community, no longer. Yeah, yeah, there were like a big villages there. Right. And uh, a very sort of almost like a tribal ones. Yes, there were. Yeah. yeah. No longer. If we wanted that, we don't have that anymore. I don't know whether it's better or worse that, mm -hmm. than what we have today. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But that, we will not have anymore. Mm -hmm. I, take a, I take another example. If we, if we think about what is what should be the goal just of... Uh, of that type of the urban life that would kind of a, to make best out of the fact that uh, we like people who are thinking a little bit same way as we do, but we also enjoy uh, usually uh, meeting people who are different to ourselves, mm -hmm. to, at, at least to some extent. And, and I see particularly in some of the European cities this type of the thing. Let's take for instance Amsterdam. Um, if Amsterdam is a hugely popular city, but when you go to any street in Amsterdam, you see, you see all these very, very diverse folks. And uh, well, well, London is of course a little bit the same mm -hmm. thing, and New York as well. So it's not. But what is different to Amsterdam is that there people are meeting each other in a very different way, and that is because of the physical infrastructure. Of course. Because a lot of the cars are being pushed out, uh, people have more space to each other. There is actually a huge amount of public space everywhere, which can be totally inhabited. Not people sitting in their in their metal boxes, but people who are walking in the street and meeting there and having cafes there and all that. And so, so that's a kind of an ideal of the urban culture, yes. which has been pushed away from most of the American cities yes. certainly, also most of the European cities I must say, mm -hmm. because of the 70-80% years of this kind of a urban dense development which has been promoted by ways of in, trying to enhance um, a, a, a private car use basically. So a big, which, be, which has been by itself a kind of a symbol for kind of modern, modern freedom. And so, uh, when we get to the next phase of the urbanism, do you see here, I mean, we are here in Santa Barbara that has been fighting against maybe some of these socially detrimental tendencies that you see in so many, so many cities. So how do you see that, how does this city has coped with the fact that, that it has done some a little bit different policies than, than these urban centers usually, or cities have usually done? Yeah. That, that has been the, the history of, of Santa Barbara, um, goes back to the 1960s. <clears throat> and um, at that time, the leadership, the political leadership, was very much inspired for the New Earth Movement, you know, and hippies uh, that were residents of Santa Barbara. And they were uh, very much aware that they didn't want to have something like Los Angeles. For them, Los Angeles was the... I don't know, the devil, right? Mm -hmm. It was the opposite of what they wanted yeah. to have. Mm -hmm. And so what they did, started doing, was to try to imitate in their construction, although they didn't succeed completely. The success was relative, mm -hmm. because in Santa Barbara also you have sprawls, also you have commutes, also you have the use of cars, much mm -hmm. more uh, you know, than in any other European mm -hmm. city. Yeah. Uh, so it's a relative success, in the whole of California it's a relative success for that kind of community. But they try to minimize growth, they try to not to imitate, architecturally speaking, imitate more like a little uh, Mediterranean villa or even Mexican villa than, than imitating the rest of the country that was going for this ugly, mm -hmm. totally terrible architectural style of the 1960s. I mean, they were mm -hmm. safe from that. So I was saying, but the other thing that they control is key to that is water. Mm -hmm. They control water. The city controls the water. So in order in a place like this in which water is scarce, mm -hmm. if you need to build a you know a skyscraper or a big building or something like that, 
and the city opposed it, there was nothing you could do because the water was not provided. Okay. So the constructor, mm-hmm. you know, the so contractor was, mm-hmm. couldn't, couldn't do this. So the mm-hmm. control of water was typical of this town and of Golila also. Mm-hmm. So Navarro next door to Golila, Golila to the north, Navarro mm-hmm. to the south. They were kind of twin towns. Mm-hmm. Now look at the difference because Golila, which was a cattle racing mm-hmm. place, and oranges, orange growers and, mm-hmm. and cattle racing ranch. That was where Golira was. Even Santa Barbara had a little bit of that, although Santa mm-hmm. Barbara always had this glamour of being Hollywood, precious jewel, because the first movies like, you know, Gone with the Wind mm-hmm. and The Great Escape and all these classics were actually um, first time shown in Santa Barbara. You know, the Granada mm-hmm. Theater that you yes. know now, who is mm-hmm. a theater, it was a movie theater. Mm-hmm. And the Arlington Theater also was, for the same purposes, built to show the premieres. Mm-hmm. So they wanted to escape to this little quiet town and do the premiere here. And Sanabara had this allure of being also connected to Hollywood. So Sanabara was a little bit different. But look at the evolution of Golira. Golira has evolved into another American town, like any other American town. Why? Because they allowed to uh, investment from big corporations. They allowed the first, they were the first ones that allowed the construction of shopping malls. Santa Barbara didn't have shopping malls in the 1970s or 80s, right? Mm-hmm. They didn't want them, yeah. Right, you know, Macy's and, and, and Robinson and all these things will come to Santa Barbara. And they didn't want any shopping mall. It was a sign of tackiness to have a shopping mall. Mm-hmm. It was not mm-hmm. really tasteful. Mm-hmm. Santa Barbara was known for boutique shops mm-hmm. that were all dotted mm-hmm. on the state street mm-hmm. that you know yeah. today. They were all boutique little shops. Uh, you couldn't find a shopping mall. You couldn't find anything cheap either. In order to buy cheap, you had to go to, you know, uh, Ventura mm-hmm. or another, another nearby town. So that was the philosophy of this town. It's a boutique town. Food and all these things were dominated by cooperatives. In Santa Barbara, you could buy food in many cooperatives around the area. You could also go to Oxnard to cooperatives. It's all agricultural, so you could buy goods here. On the State Street, there were three or four uh, fruit stands that you could buy your stuff, and it was not, you know, a regular uh, food in the food store. Mm-hmm. It was cooperatives who sold it. Some of these still remain, and some of them the owners of the cooperatives, you know, some of the hippies from mm-hmm. the old times, etc., became actually very rich and very wealthy uh, with these co-ops. Uh, but that was the mentality of the town. A beach, relaxing town, a lot of the houses that you see around State Street, and you see mm. here also in the vicinity, were, were uh, shacks for the summer. There were rentals, summer rentals, that people live here in the summer, but then in the rest of the year they live somewhere else. Mm. And that's what it was. But Golira was not. And Golira today is, you know, full of investment from big international corporations, uh, high-tech industries, mm. uh, radar industries, uh, computer industries. Mm. Uh, they are all in Golira, you know. And then came in Deckers and, and the other the other big companies into Valera, which has a different city council from mm. Santa Barbara. Mm. Santa Barbara still remains a little bit of an exception. Mm-hmm. Yet, that sense of community that you were talking about mm. in Amsterdam mm. is not here. Mm. And it's not anywhere in America. Mm. It's not, not anywhere in America, because in America, the physical build-up of the city from mm. the beginning was very, very different. Yeah. From there, in you know, you build the freeway first, and then you build the city after. <laughs> you know, yeah, that's yeah. what they did. So yeah, yeah. you know, the yeah, whole yeah. California and Texas was built that way. Mm-hmm. First the freeway, then the city. Mm-hmm. 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 Yes, and I think we can agree that cars and highways have been the biggest disruptor in the evolution of urban societies, and that have really worked against keeping the spirit of community alive. And this car dependency has also influenced suburban development and the movement of people away from city centers and towards the suburbs. But now we're seeing a different movement, and this is being influenced by these global players and these big technology companies, um, as you call them, technocrats, that are coming into towns and to cities like Seattle, San Francisco, New York, 
and and really creating huge gaps in inequality and and increasing the political and social divide. So, given all of that, what do you think should be the right balance uh, between uh, this nationalistic approach uh, and the uh, more globalized approach? How should we uh, embrace globalization in this case? Yeah, um, well, very difficult question, uh, but I think that uh, the Go Local movement, which is a movement that has a name, Go Local, right? Uh, movement well, has tried to do, and even the, the, the home garden movement, the whole, uh, there's another movement called, I think, uh, um, I don't remember the name of the movement, but it's the people that think that they cultivate their own fruits and vegetables in their own backyard, right? Mm-hmm. In cities like New York and Chicago and all that, there's a big movement toward that, you know, not to buy uh, things, because that contributes to corporate, <coughs> corporate America. So they want to fight corporate America. And so they try to grow their own vegetables and their own things. Uh, in Santa Barbara in particular, there is a very strong sense of that, that we need to remain local. For example, you look around here and you go to a store like this one that you have here, which is a local store. Lacey mm-hmm. Acres is mm-hmm. a local owner, mm-hmm. I, although he's from, from, I think, Iran, but he's mm-hmm. a local owner. Mm-hmm. Um, you see that they have a lot of products that are built and are produced here around mm-hmm. the area. Like in a European city, where you go and the products, the olive oil and all this produced around there. This is strong here. But I think, I think this continues to be an island. Mm-hmm. Uh, Santa Barbara continues to be an island. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen enormous transformation in so-called in Southern California mm-hmm. in my lifetime. Mm-hmm. In my lifetime. Uh, the enormous transformation but from local to global mm-hmm. from a product that is mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. considered to be uh, locally grown mm-hmm. and is really not locally grown mm-hmm. from uh, you know grapes that said organic mm-hmm. but they come from Chile mm-hmm. from you know I mean things that are sold as local but are not mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. you know and this I saw in my lifetime mm-hmm. and you have, but you haven't not seen the thing that we have seen now in Europe which is that there is really a very very strong new movement against this kind of a globalized version of uh, of a consumer slash sort of a citizen market and and that is sort of a combined with with also with trying to rearrange the space yeah. in the central yeah. part of the cities in a, yeah. in a new way push yeah. cars away and yeah. but you don't see that happening no here. no because it, well part, one of the problems is that the cities don't own anything in this country the city owns very little land yeah. you know it's, it's recently the cities in this country have you know, came to their attention that this was not something good to do, to sell the land. If you go to any coastal town, you'll see here that people, private citizens, own access to the beach, things like that that were done in this country regularly before. Now it's coming back to haunt us. Now it's coming back to say we shouldn't have done this in the first place. So cities have little... Freedom of movement, if yeah. they wanted Policy, to restore yeah. this mm. thing. I mean, the most they can do is to do, you know, pedestrian walks mm. and cut the traffic and this. Mm. And, but by moving things around mm. uh, in America, it's very difficult. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even shopping malls, you know, that are not public spaces. They are really private spaces. Mm. We call them public, but they are really private. Mm-hmm. Somebody owns them all, mm-hmm. right? So it's a mm-hmm. private space. Mm. Even those uh, private spaces that are considered public spaces mm. have a very limited capacity to really be transforming something different. Yeah. Fernando, we're coming to the end of our podcast. Where can people find your book? Uh, the book is in every um, well, Amazon, of course. I mean, talking about corporations, <laughs> <laughs> Amazon, of course, has, has the book. Uh, any other major bookstore in this mm. country has the book. Um, also in London, Rutledge, London has the book. Uh, so it, it's available basically mm. in every single yeah. outlet that you can think of. And the message of that book, I think, strongly is to consider that if the reasons why nationalism and populism have gotten so strong in the world 
are not removed or those um, uh, causes do not change, uh, what we're going to see is a strengthening of these of mm. these of mm. these tendencies because mm. I don't see uncertainty going away. I don't see the faith in politicians improving. I don't see faith in democracy becoming really better in the near future. I don't see immigration becoming an issue that can be resolved in the near future either. I don't see immigration policies passing right by governments that make any sense because governments are overwhelmed by oh, it. Oh. I don't see improvements in the places those immigrants come from in the place in the first place. Oh. Let's not forget that immigrants go to other places because something happens at home oh. that pushes them out, right? And while we don't see any of these improvements, uh, unfortunately or fortunately, is depending on how you look at it, this combination of nationalism and populism will be a thriving force in the near future. This completes our episode, Global Forces Moving Urban Futures. Thanks for listening. See you next time.